But all of you that were saying choir, 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 it's your time. It's your hour. It's your season. And I know it's going to be good. I'm believing God for, for a Fort Worth tab. Fort Worth Tabernacle Choir. You know, you got the Brooklyn tab. Some of y'all looking at me funny. You got the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. How about Fort Worth Tabernacle Choir? I'm serious. It can happen. It can happen. All right, we're going to finish tonight uh, the joyful letter. How many of you could, could stand some more joy? How many of you have come to understand in this series that joy is a choice? And that you've got to stir up the gift of God that's within you. And you're about as joyful as you want to be. Oh, amen, Pastor Jeff. Wow, let me clear out my ears there. I'm serious because within you is the Spirit of God. You've got to stir it up. But now tonight, let's look at don't worry, be happy. Now, it starts out, and let's, we're going to be uh, reading in uh, chapter 4. And verses 4 and 5 to begin with, and i got to lead the way up to worry. Uh, but let's, let's stand just to read this, these two verses, and then you can be seated the rest of the time. And I want to just teach you the Word of God tonight. You know, we got a letter, email this week from a woman and her daughter who live in Sunnyvale. And Sunnyvale is over in the Rockwall area, in the Mesquite area, Garland area, way out there in Dallas. And she said, we visited two times um, because of the radio. We heard you on the radio, and we came and visited twice. I said, wow, that's a long ways. And so we went and visited several churches in the Rockwall, Garland area, and we've decided that the church alive is worth the drive. And so we're going to make your church our church home. So they're coming all the way from Sunnyvale. Now, I know the key. The key is people want the Word of God. They don't want three points in a poem. They don't want, you know, sweet little nothings. They don't want, they want the Word of God. They want to be taught the Word of God. And so that's our dinner bell. Our dinner bell is worship the Lord and then look at the Word of the Lord. And we feed people. And so, uh, you know, the key to a, a good church is just grow grass, the Word of God. Just, just grow grass that the sheep like to eat. Amen? So let's just look at some good grass. Should I say that? But that's what it is. That's, that's what Philippians is. It's the letter of joy. It's the joyful letter. So let's look at it. Can you read this with me? Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again. Rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, I want you all to preach that last part to me again. One, two, three. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Bless it to our hearts. We're hungry, Lord. Feed us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And let's finish out Philippians. And uh, first of all, chapter 4, if you remember last time, began with Paul instructing two of the leading spiritual women in the congregation uh, to drop their differences and get along for the sake of the body. And sometimes, folks, you do have to get it together for the sake of others. If you can't do it for you, do it for somebody else. Do it for the people who are being adversely affected around you. And that goes for the home. That goes for the church. He, he's basically saying these, these two ladies were having 
differences, and it was beginning to affect the whole church body. And that's what will happen. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And they were spiritual women, leading women, leaders in the church, but they were having a spat. And so he says, get it together. And then he advises ongoing rejoicing. Now that's something I want to tell you tonight, it's not going to put you in a headlock. Rejoicing is not going to put you in a headlock and make you rejoice. You have got to learn, as I've had to learn and still do have to learn, that we've got to make a choice to rejoice. Because within you is the well. Within you is the well of water. Within you is the power of God. Within you is the great overcomer, the greatest overcomer in the history of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul had to write to Timothy and say, hey, you've got to stir up the gift of God that's within you. You're getting kind of dry, Timothy. You're getting kind of fearful. And you're going to have to stir up the gift of God that's in you. So it's a, it's a choice. Now the Greek reads like this. Be rejoicing. Be rejoicing. Present tense. Uh, it actually would read, be ongoingly always rejoicing. Be ongoingly rejoicing. Now that's the word of the Lord to you and to me. We are to be rejoicers, not worriers as we're about to see. Not people filled with fear, not people filled with doubt. We are to be people filled with faith and filled with joy. That's, that's, that's the family inheritance. That's the family blessing. That's what flows in your veins spiritually. And so this is what he's telling us. I want you to be ongoingly rejoicing in your attitude. All right, an attitude of gratitude. This is accomplished. Here's how this is accomplished. By putting on spiritual glasses that enable you to see the bigger picture. Now I want you to think with me for a minute. If all I can see is what's in this room, then I'm affected by what's in this room. If all I can see is what's in this room, then I'm totally affected by what happens in it. Do you understand that? If this is my whole world, what's in this room, then the only thing that's going to affect me is what's in this room, for good or for bad. But if I can go beyond this room and keep my eyes on Jesus and on the promises of God, I'm enabled to maintain a perspective that, that defy my immediate circumstances. Okay? So we are not to be led by, influenced by, under the control of, the things that are happening around us. That is not Bible joy. Joy does not depend on happening, on what is happening around you. Happiness does. The American Western understanding of happiness is things make me happy. Events make me happy. Uh, what happens around me makes me happy. But that is not the Bible understanding of happiness. That's not it. The Bible understanding of happiness is joy. And joy is the result of what has happened inside of you, not what's happening around you. Now, let's keep in mind, the man, Paul, is writing from jail. Now, I'm not going to write this way if I'm in jail. I'm going to write, get my lawyer, pray for me. I'm in major tribulation. I don't know if I'm going to make it through all this. Look, he's in jail, and he's writing the joyful letter. Obviously, his joy was not dependent on a happening. His happenings around him were very adverse. 
but Paul had joy. And so he's telling us you trigger it from within. There are joy triggers, praise, a good confession. These are joy triggers, staying in the Word of God, staying in prayer, staying in fellowship. These are joy triggers. If I start to get down, feel blue, feel kind of, you know, overcast, I open up the Word of God. This is a joy trigger for me. And I begin to read the promises. And the more of the promises I read, the more my faith is lifted. And I do not stay in that negative state of mind for long. I do not give it long. Because I've been called to walk in joy. And I'm not saying I've skipped down every street. But I tell you, I, I maintain the peace of God. I maintain the joy of the Lord. Uh, I'm a relatively, basically, fundamentally happy guy on the inside because I stay in the Word. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Uh, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And so joy, this Word has the power to ignite joy in you. Do you know that? This Word has the power to stir up the gift that's in you and ignite the joy of the Lord. So don't walk around looking like you just lost your best friend. Walk around looking like something good happened to you because it did. You got saved. You're redeemed. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you. And that's the way Paul fully expected the church to live in the joy of the Lord. Now he, he, he leaves talking about the joy and he's going to talk to us now about worrying because you can't have joy and worry. Worry and joy don't stay in the same house. Let's look at what he said. He said, don't fret or worry. This is Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. Isn't that great? And why should we even bother with this? Why should we even worry about worrying? Now, I'm going to tell you, I've told you this many, many times before, but I'll, I'll tell you again tonight. I come from a family of worriers. My mother is going to hear this on radio. My mother's not a worrier. It was on my dad's side. And, you know, bless the Lord. He's with the Lord now. But, but, but uh, on earth... He was raised in a worrying family, and he really had learned to be a worrier. And I'm not saying that as a criticism of him. He needed to be set free like a lot of us do from worry. But worry is a learned response to adversity. Worry is a learned response to adversity. And worry is a learned response to just life. Instead of praying it through, you worry about it. You worry about everything. And I learned to worry about everything. I mean, I was a worrier. And, and my whole, on my dad's side, the whole family was worriers. They all lived up in New York. And if you didn't want to worry about it, you could call them and they'd worry about it for you. They were worriers. And if you talked to them on the phone, what did you hear? You heard, I'm worried about this, worried about that. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about that? Now, part of it was because they were raised in the Depression and where, where nothing was certain. They, they, they really did live on potatoes twice a day for a number of years. That's all they had. They went through the depression. So they learned that, that nothing being certain and, and not really having faith in God, they were on their own and they learned to worry. But I learned that the same way you learn contentment and the same way you learn to trigger joy within you, you unlearn worry. You learn not to worry. 
Can I tell you tonight, you don't have to worry. Do you believe that God's not going to tell you something in His Word if you can't do it? If you can't do it, why is He going to tell you to do it? If, 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 if He knows we can't stop worrying, why would He torment us by telling us not to worry? God knows that you can live worry-free. You can break the cycle of worry because that's what it is. It's a thinking cycle. And you can break it. And you can learn to trust God and not worry, but instead be happy. He's telling us, don't worry, but pray about everything. So we have a choice. We have an exchange to make. We can exchange worry for prayer. And if you pray about it instead of worry about it, the Bible says you're going to be set free now. Why should we worry about worrying? Why should we be? And that's what I used to do. I'd get worried about how much I worried. Man, I'm worrying a lot. Gosh, I'm worrying a lot. I'm worrying too much. Why am I worrying so much? Is something wrong with me? I'm wondering why I worry like I worry. And I was always stepping in to see what condition my condition was in. You know what I'm saying? But why should we worry? Because a worried mind, say this with me, a worried mind is a distracted mind. Even the very word worry is taken from the Greek word merim, merimnao. Merimnao. Now let me teach you a Greek word tonight. Merimnao is the Greek word for um, anxiety or worry. Now the first part of the word meri or M-E-R-I, the first part of that word, means to divide. To divide. The second part, nao, means remembrance or memory. Now look at the power of this word. Look at the insidiousness of this word. So the whole word the Greek word for worry is to go back and divide up or rehash memories that cause fear and doubt and uncertainty. You're dividing up these memories. You're dividing up these circumstances. You're parsing all these things that are in your life or in your mind. You're, you're, you're focused on it. You're obsessing over it. And it's causing fear and doubt and worry, that ache in your body. Maybe you've lost a job. Where's the money going to come from? Or something that happened to you back there and you keep bringing it up, rehashing it, dividing it in your mind, focusing on it, and it's causing you fear and doubt and torment and distraction so that you can't concentrate on God. And God doesn't want that. Listen, Paul's whole gist here is he wants you and me as believers to be able to focus on the will of God and what does worry do worry comes and distracts you divides your time divides your attention takes your mind off of God and gets your mind on negative things and that way you can't focus on God and you won't grow you won't read the word you're too worried to read the word too worried to sleep too worried to get up in the morning you're worried it's torture his whole issue with worry is that if you're preoccupied with things that produce fear, uncertainty, and doubt, you can't go forward in God. And to Paul, it was all important to be able to go on in God. Anything that hindered you, he wanted it out of your life. So Paul says, rather than worry about it, pray about it. It's your choice. I love this statement. Worry is a dark room where negatives are developed. Isn't that good? I wish I'd thought of that. Why didn't I think of that? I, hang on, I'm, I'm worried about that. 
Worry is a dark room where negatives are developed. Worry solves nothing, not a thing. It's a hamster's wheel picture. If you're worried, you're just going around in endless circles solving nothing, going nowhere, getting out of nothing, walking out of nothing. The Bible teaches plainly that prayer is the bouncer that kicks worry out of your house. Now, you can leave it there or you can kick it out. Prayer is a big, burly bouncer, and, it, and prayer will kick worry out of your house. Thanksgiving, which is also in that verse, with prayer and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Thanksgiving slams the door shut and locks it. The bouncer is prayer, kicks it out. Thanksgiving slams the door shut and locks it. And God's peace keeps watch over the door, lest the thief come back in. Now that's picture. So you got prayer, thanksgiving, and peace. Guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Before you know it, listen to what Paul says. I love this. It's out of the Message Bible. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. You will experience his peace. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. How many of you want to live, be worry-free? Live worry-free living? All right, I'm telling you. You got to take action. You can't just sit there, well, I wish, I hope, I, I, I hope it can happen to me. It can, and it will, if you pray and thank God and let his peace guard your mind. Now, I want you to notice as we move along in chapter 4 and, and head towards the end here, notice the progression in this chapter. He says, first of all, in the first couple of verses, walk in love. Y'all get along together, walk in love. Walk in joy and walk in peace. He's dealing with our walking about, the way we live our lives, walking about. So I want you to walk in love. I want you to walk in joy. I want you to walk in peace. Has it occurred to you that that's the first three words to the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. So he says, this is what believers ought to be walking in, not fear and worry and anger and doubt and worry and torment, but love, joy, peace. That's normal Christian living. Now, if only the church did these three things. Think of the church. If the church did just these three things, walked in love, joy, and peace, how irresistible Christianity would be. Man, I tell you, every time I get around that guy, he's just full of love and joy and peace, and he's not doing anything He's not smoking it. He's not drinking it. He's not shooting it. He's not snorting it. Where is he getting this joy? Where is he getting this peace? Well, they'll start asking you where you're getting it. You're, the, you're, you're God's billboard. Everywhere you go. So smile. All right? Now, if, uh, next, Paul advises against stinking thinking. Now, I know nobody in here ever involves themselves in stinking thinking, but I've got to deal with it because it's in these verses. So let's look at stinking thinking. He says, I want you to walk in love, joy, and peace, and I want you to get rid of stinking thinking. Listen to what he says. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things that are... Now, listen, here's what you ought to be thinking of. Here goes the list. True, noble reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, 
things to praise, not things to curse. Paul knows you're not going to have love and joy and peace if your mind is full of stinking thinking. It's not going to happen. Because your victory comes between your two ears in that gray matter called the brain. The battlefield is the mind. The battlefield is not out here. Today, I would venture to say everyone in this room had at least one battle and it happened in your mind. Your mind is where you're tempted. Your mind is where the devil hurls his fiery darts. Your mind is what the devil attacks. And what is a fiery dart? It's a thought that comes out of nowhere and strikes you in your mind. And it can be anything. A fearful thought, a worrisome thought, a lustful thought, a doubting thought. And you're driving along and everything's cool and all of a sudden, bang, it hits you in your mind. And you're, where did that come from? Before you know it, something is burning in your head. Worry, fear, it's burning in your head. What is that? It's the fiery arrows of the devil And he is scheming to take your peace away from you and your victory away from you so that you don't count for Christ on this earth. So Paul says, if you're going to walk in love, joy, and peace, you're going to have to control your thoughts. Now let me tell you a little secret about controlling the thoughts. Um, And and I, I put the list here again of what you're supposed to think about from another version. He said, if it's true, if it's honest, if it's just, if it's pure, if it's lovely... If it's of good report, if there's any virtue and any praise, that's what you've got to set your thoughts on. Have you noticed when you wake up in the morning, the devil immediately makes a play for your thoughts? Have you noticed that? That's why you better get into the Word quickly. Because if you're not aware of it, and you get up and you rub your eyes, and you go in there and you put the toast in the toaster and get the coffee going and Flip on that TV. You just let the devil in your mind. I'm going to tell you, that TV has gone to hell in a handcart. Can I tell you, most of it you could get rid of today and never miss it. It's garbage. It's secular, humanistic garbage. That's why before the devil can get a hold of your thoughts, you've got to let God get a hold of your thoughts. And you open up this word and just start reading it. This morning, man, I sat in my chair, had the coffee, opened up the Word of God. Before I knew it, I was on a hunt. I was on something, something rang true to me and kind of hit me between the eyes. And before I knew it, I'm in a 30-minute Bible study without even trying to be. And I got my mind on spiritual things. But just like you, if I don't get up and set my thoughts, my mind will go on carnal things just like yours. We're in a battle. All right? So... Let's go on and look at this stinking thinking thing a little bit. Here's the principle. How do you get rid of stinking thinking? You cannot displace stinking thinking unless you replace it with righteous thinking. It doesn't do you any good to say, I'm not going to think bad. Just like if I said, don't think of that pink elephant in this room. And you try not to think about it, and all you think about is a great big pink elephant in the room. Why? Because the mind works this way. You can't have a vacuum in your mind. If you displace something, you've got to replace it. If you erase something, you've got to replace it with something. So the way to get rid of negative, worrisome, fearful, lustful, negative, destructive thinking is you've got to displace it by putting something else in your mind. 
And what is that something else? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The only thing that knocks stinking thinking out of your mind is this word. Prayer throws worry out. But this right here, this book, this word, this Bible throws stinking thinking out of your head. You can be as saved as the day is long and live your life out in stinking thinking. It's your choice. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to involve myself in thinking that makes me depressed, fearful, or anything else. I want to fill my mind with the Word of God. And the Bible will do it. Fort Worth Star Telegram won't do it. Good Morning America won't do it. A romance novel won't do it. People Magazine won't do it. Cosmo won't do it. That will do it. Okay? Boy, y'all are full of amens tonight. I must be preaching good. How many of you know we're to walk in love, joy, and peace, and we're to walk with control over what we think? We put the Word of God in there. Lustful thoughts, fearful musings, worrisome considerations. These and other types of counterproductive, destructive thinking are only displaced when they're replaced by the Word of God. And you got to look in that word daily, folks. I know I'm a broken record on this, but I was talking to somebody again this week who has trouble getting anything out of the Word. And I said to them, I said, did you do what I asked you to do the week before? Well, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. And I said, you come to the doctor. I give you a prescription. I tell you what it's going to take for you to get into the Word of God. And then you come back the next week and tell me it didn't work, but you didn't do it. Well, what did I tell him to do? I told him, open up the Bible, pick a couple of verses, always with a pen in your hand. Make notes. Read a few verses and say, now, what did that say to me? Because anything in here, God put it here to say something to you. He put it here to say something to you. It's God's love letter to you, the whole thing. All 66 books are God's love letter to you. So you've got to open it up and personalize it and go, hey, he wrote this to me. He's got something to tell me through these verses. So I told this person, start in John. Just read John. And with a pen, write what you think God was going to say to you, what God wanted to say to you. And you'll find you'll start writing and more and more and more will flow. You've got to personalize it. If you don't personalize it, you're not going to get anything out of it. You've got to open it up and go, what does God want to say to Jeff? What does he want to say to Jane? What's he want to say to Matt? What's he want to say? All right. I expect him to say something to me. I read it. I make a note. I date it so that a year later I can go back and say, on that date, God said that to me. And look what has happened since then. Look what God has done in my life. This book of mine, this Bible, has become a journal. It's full of dates and times and places and thoughts and revelations and words that God gave me. This is my Bible. If I lose it, I lost a piece of me. I lost it a couple of weeks ago. Had a panic attack. I left it at a Baptist church. I called on the phone. And before, when I said, this is Jeff Wickware, we've got your Bible. I said, hallelujah, I'll be right over. That's my Bible. And don't you dare open it. But you've got to expect God to talk to you out of it. It's God's love letter to you. Don't let it sit on the shelf and gather dust. It's how your mind is renewed. 
It's how your life has changed. It's how you become more like Him. Then Paul says something that only somebody who walks really close with God could possibly say. And it's a tough one. He says, the things you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace is going to be with you. How many of us could say, what you saw and heard and learned and watched in me, I advise you to do exactly what you saw. And God will give you peace. If you're walking real tight with God, you can say that. He didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk, and they all saw it. It wasn't just talk with Paul, he walked it. Then in verse 10, he praises them for renewing their interest in his ministry. This is a Philippian church. He has a testimony that he has learned how to be content whether he receives help or not. Now, notice that contentment wasn't a gift that just fell on him out of the clear blue sky. He learned how to be content. Look what he said. Actually, quote, he says, actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I don't need anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I've learned to be content. And look what he says. I'm just as happy with little as with much. And do you all see? The man was not controlled by circumstances. His joy was an inside job. He said, I'm just as happy with little as I am with much, with much as with little. You give me much, I'm happy. You give me little, I'm happy. It doesn't matter because much or little don't make me happy. Things don't make me happy. My joy is in him. He said, I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. I found a recipe. Well, I read that and I want to know what the recipe is because I'd love that kind of contentment, all right, because we can all learn the same thing. What was the recipe? Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in Christ who makes me who I am. That's the recipe for contentment. It is in a man named Jesus. It is not in things or stuff, possessions or position. It is not in any of that. It's in the man, Christ Jesus. That's how I can say much, little, Take it, leave it, doesn't matter to me. I'm happy. I've got joy no matter what. Now, that's a winner. That's a winner. Another version says, and you recognize this one, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But let's remember the all things he's talking about is I can be content in any situation through Christ. I'm sitting in jail, folks, and I can be content. Then he adds this. I don't mean that your help didn't mean a lot to me. It did. Thank you that you helped me. You sent me some help on my missionary journey and then some help here in jail. It was a beautiful thing that you came alongside me in my troubles. That's great. Now, do you all hear the joy in the Attitude King's voice? Do you hear it? He says, nothing, nothing knocks me down. Nothing knocks me down. Nothing. I'm in jail. I may be martyred. You're out free. I'm locked up. But I have joy. Nothing knocked him down. It was due to a recipe. I have found that drawing from the presence of Jesus within me 
and walking in prayer and in thanksgiving and in love. I have contentment no matter where I am. Mm. This is why Philippians is called the joyful letter. He's brimming over with inner victory that he's obtained through Jesus Christ. Is that the kind of Christian you know? I guess not. <laughs> I mean, we lose our job. <laughs> what am I going to do? Paul would lose a job and say, hey, you know, hey, I'm happy. Not worried. God will take care of me. Give me somebody to preach to. In verses 14 and 19, we're coming in for the close here. Paul recognized the principle of sowing and reaping in the Philippian church. And I want you to listen carefully to this because now we're coming down to money. He reminds them in, in verse 15 and 16 that they had been the only church that gave financially into his ministry. And they had done it once and again. They gave into his ministry. Now in verse 17, he reiterates that being content and taken care of by Christ himself, he didn't seek their gifts. He wasn't sending uh, help letters to them. He wasn't sending contribution letters. He didn't do that. They did this on their own. But he did, watch this now, he did seek a blessing for them. Listen to the words. He says, quote, Not that I'm looking for handouts, but I do want you to experience the blessing that issues from generosity. Now here's what this huge heart is saying. I don't need your stuff, y'all. God takes care of me. I'm content. But you know what? I want you to give to me for one reason. I want you to be blessed by generosity. So even in receiving, he only received with the motive that the givers would be blessed. That's what he's saying. If you're generous towards me and towards the work of God, God's going to bless you. And I want that blessing on your life. And look at the effects that their gifts had on God himself. This is how God saw their gifts. The gifts you sent with Epaphroditus were more than enough, like a sweet-smelling sacrifice roasting on the altar filling the air with fragrance, pleasing God to no end. When you give to the Lord to further the work of the Lord, there is a fragrance that reaches up to God. And it pleases God to no end. Isn't that powerful? You say, well, I, I didn't even know God was aware of what I gave. God watches everything you gave. Jesus watched the woman give one penny. And he noticed her giving. So he said, I want you to be blessed. And, and I happen to know that when you sent that gift, God was blessed and pleased to no end. Now next follows the verse we all know so well, but now it's in a different context. Philippians 4, 19. You can be sure that God will take care of everything you need. Who's he saying that to? Sowers. Those who had given to the work. You can be sure God's going to take care of everything you need. The generosity, uh, His generosity exceeding even yours in the glory that pours from Jesus. Our God and Father abounds in glory that just pours out into eternity. He said the reason that you can expect God to give to you and meet all your needs is because you gave to the work of the Lord. Now let's move on quickly and we're going to close. Everybody happy tonight? All right. God was taking care of them through the principle of sowing and reaping. That's how they were being blessed. They had a right to expect blessing was coming because of what they had sown in their field. 
All right? Now, in verses 20 to 23, Paul blesses God and issues forth various greetings. Now, I want us to stand together and read these closing verses of Philippians together. Now, say with me before we read, he wants me walking in love, joy, peace, a pure mind, and a sowing attitude. Now, if you would just take chapter 4 and do it, you'll live a blessed life. You will be blessed if you just do chapter 4. All right? So let's go to these last few verses and read them all with me, can you? Now all glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ Jesus, The brothers who are with me send you their greetings, and all the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household. Now preach this last part to me real good and loud. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Father, may the fellowship and the grace of Jesus be with our spirits. Help us to walk in love, in joy, in peace because we've prayed about our worries. Help us, Lord, to walk with a mind filled with the thoughts of God. And help us, Lord, to live a sowing life, that we can live a reaping life. And, Lord, I pray that this church and all listening by radio will live chapter 4 and in doing so be blessed by God. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's just sing one time before we.